All right, we are in the middle of a series through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. We're looking at the life of Daniel. Um, And the reason we're doing that is because I'm convinced that this book that was written about 2,500 years ago is actually one of the most relevant, one of the most practical, and one of the most important pieces of ancient scripture, ancient writing at all, that we could ever read today as modern people. You see, Daniel and his friends, they were fighting to faithfully follow God in a place that had very little interest in God. The city of Babylon, where they were exiled, had plenty of interest in spirituality. It, had, it was a very pluralistic place. They found themselves surrounded by many religions and beliefs and values that were different than their own. But this was not a place that was easy to follow God. Sometimes it was because of outright hostility towards their faith, but much more often... It was because of this sort of smothering, strangling pressure that they felt towards distraction and towards following any other kind of life than the one God had called them to. But here's the thing. God brought them to that place on purpose. Okay, and he did it not because he disliked them or hated them, but because he had a plan for them there and he actually loved them. So he called these men, these women, to this place on purpose to be a light and a witness, to be a compelling um, witness to the gospel in their time away from home. Not to retreat from the culture, not to blend into the culture, but to to be compellingly different. A faithful presence for his love. So watching them encounter all of the different circumstances that they encounter is sort of like seeing ourselves from the outside. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie and you've seen a character in that movie and you've thought, oh my gosh, like that's me. That person is living my life. Okay. We are Daniel and his friends. That's us. And, and the Bible is calling them, calling us to, um, sorry, the Bible is setting them up as a guide for our lives today. This is all of us. So we're about to read Daniel 3. We're actually going to read the whole thing. That's why Rick is standing up here, kind of off to the side. He's not here, like, assessing my sermon. We do that later. Uh, He's about to read. And uh, it's going to take about five minutes, but here's the thing. Honestly, hearing the word of God for five minutes is probably more important than anything I would say for five minutes, okay? So I will turn it over, sit back, enjoy the mellifluous voice of Rick Barth. And as you listen... To this true story, all right, of a few young men in a foreign land trying to live faithfully, trustingly, hopefully following the call of God in their life. Ask yourself, where am I in this story? Okay. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tregon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, hype, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. 
any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. Thanks, Rick. All right, let's pray, and then we'll jump into this. Heavenly Father, we do ask that as we approach this ancient story with strange names and strange traditions, that you would reveal to our hearts and to our minds just how relevant it is, how practical and applicable it is to our lives today. I pray that your spirit right now would be at work as we approach your good word. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so I want to look at this story this morning through the lens of deep happiness. Okay, deep happiness. Deep happiness goes by a lot of different names, but you know what I'm talking about when I say deep happiness. This is the experience of being internally content and satisfied and at peace, even if life is externally chaotic or out of, out of control or disorienting or hard. Deep happiness is, it's not necessarily a state of our circumstances, what's making us happy and feel good. It's a state of our soul. And it's being comfortable in our own skin, okay? It, it's, being, um, it's being joyful and at rest. It's an abiding belief that we are okay right now, just as we are, that we're okay. And I think deep happiness is actually what all of us are searching for basically all the time, okay? The, the quest for deep happiness is what our life story is about. It's why we do everything we do. It's why we say what we say. It's why we spend the money that we spend. We're on this quest for feeling okay, being okay. And um, this story in Daniel 3 shows us two strategies in our quest for deep happiness. Uh, There's a 90-foot golden statue strategy on the one hand, and then there's a condemned to death in a fiery furnace strategy on the other hand. And here's the surprising news of Daniel 3, that according to the Bible, if you actually want to find deep happiness, choose the fiery furnace every single time, okay? That's what this story, that's what this chapter is actually about. Let's look at the golden statue approach to happiness first. This happiness strategy can be summed up really easily. Your external circumstances have the power to make you happy. Okay, that's the premise. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is after. To to really see what's going on here, we need a little background from Daniel 2 that we looked at last week. In that chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar, who we met in this chapter, had a dream that disturbed him. He gathered all the wise men from Babylon, and he asked them not only to interpret his dream, but to tell him what the dream was first, okay? A totally impossible task. And then he says, oh, and by the way, if you can't do it, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. I'm gonna, your house will be you know, um, a pile of rubble by the time I get done. And that'll happen to everybody, not only those who fail to um, try to do this. And so in light of this outrageous task, Daniel appeals to God for wisdom and God grants him wisdom. He grants him revelation about what this dream is about. And so God shows Nebuchadnezzar his dream through Daniel. The dream is of a huge statue 
with a head of gold, a chest of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of clay mixed with iron. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what this means, what this wild dream means. Uh, The dream means that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which is Babylon, is the head of gold. Okay, It's dazzling. It's beautiful. It's, it's the crown of the world at the time, okay? the greatest nation that exists. But it will be replaced by another one that comes after it, Persia. And, and then another one, Greece. And then another one, the, the Romans. And each kingdom becomes a little less beautiful and a little less refined than the last, but harder and, and more powerful and, and more destructive in what it does in the world. And finally, Daniel reports to the king, in the, days, in, in, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms that came before it and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Okay, this is an announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God through Jesus, who will establish a government of peace and justice and life and joy for all time. Now, God shows Nebuchadnezzar his plan for the world. He shows him this whole thing, the grand sweeping story. And he shows Nebuchadnezzar that he has a very honorable and prominent role to play in that story. He's the, he's the head of gold, right? I mean, he is the vibrant, beautiful nation on top of this statue. God also shows him that this reign of Babylon, his life's work, um, it'll end Others will, others will come after him, and that eventually God will set up this eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed. So what Nebuchadnezzar gets in Daniel 2 is an insider's view of the whole scope of human history, the whole direction of history. He gets, an ins- he gets insider info on the kingdom of God established on earth, and he gets a prominent place in God's plan. Okay? That's like... Win, 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 win. What does he do with this information? What does he do in light of this revelation that God gave him in Daniel 2? Well, we hear that, well, here are some options. He could cry out in thankfulness for the gifts that God has poured out in his life, right? He could pray in humility for the wisdom and the guidance to be an excellent ruler, to shepherd his nation, He could praise God for his sovereign power and eternal kindness and eagerly look forward to the day when the kingdom of God is finally established and all of the transition and all of the difficulty and all all of the hardship of life is finally done and justice and love rule the land. But what does he do instead? He has just heard that he is the head of gold. Chapter three, verse one, what does he do? He builds a whole statue of gold, okay? From head to foot, he builds a statue to himself made entirely of gold. What is going on here? Where does this disconnect with reality come from? Okay, this is a condition known as the gag reflex. Now, my guess is you have had bouts of this reflex and this condition, this syndrome in the past. I have had it many times, and I still do. Some of you are likely suffering from it right now. I'm not really sure we ever stop suffering from this condition our whole lives. And Nebuchadnezzar has a terrible case of the gag reflex syndrome right here. Of course, gag stands for the grass is always greener. All right. The grass is always greener somewhere else. 
It, it's the mentality that no matter how good or how bad life is right now, what I really need to be truly happy for that, that deep sense of being okay with myself is an improvement on my current circumstances. It might be big, it might be small, but what I'm searching for is just a slight change, some new benefit, some, something slightly better that's going to make my life work, that's going to make me happy. There's a bike shop in Chicago. I used to ride on a cycling team when I lived in Chicago, and there's a bike shop, Velosmith, and on the back of their jerseys, it just had this little, it just had a little formula, N plus one, and I didn't know what it was for years, and so finally one of my friends asked the owner of the shop, why do you put N plus one on the back of all of your bike jerseys? And the owner said, well, that's the formula for the number of bikes you need, right? However many bikes you have, you just need N plus one. You just need one more bike. And then you'll be fully, truly content with your quiver of bikes. That's the gag reflex, okay? That's the grass is always greener. Just a slight improvement, just a little bit more, just a different circumstance, and things will be fine. And I'll be okay. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the honor and the visibility and the power beyond what most of us can imagine. He was the king of the most powerful nation on earth. And then God showed him that all that he had built would last for a season and then it'd be done. That season would pass and others would take over. But instead of accepting God's good plan, living out his part faithfully in obedience and humility to the true king of creation, Nebuchadnezzar chased a slightly better version of God's plan, didn't he? This was N plus one. Yes, the the head of gold is good, but man, wouldn't an entire statue of gold be even better? Wouldn't that make me even happier, more eternal, more secure? Thanks for this, Pastor God, but no thanks. I want that one. I want the eternal, indestructible one that you say you are about to build, the one I don't have, even given all that I have, It's the one thing I don't have, I believe, will make me truly happy. The gag reflex. The the grass is always greener on the other side. He was chasing meaning and deep happiness in his circumstances. We all do this in so many ways, okay? This is all of us. We're all Nebuchadnezzar in this story. No matter how many gifts God has already lavished upon us, we're nursing these little if-only statements, okay? If only we had a nicer house, then it'd really feel like a home. If only we had a little more money, I'd really feel secure. If only um, I could succeed on this project, on this job, in front of these people, then I'd be less anxious because I would be secured and established in my job. If only this relationship would work out, I'd know I would be valued and loved. If only I had a cycle cross bike to add to my mountain bike and road bike and uh, all these other ones, single speed for commuting around town. Um, Behind all of these beliefs is the assumption that the road to more happiness is better external circumstances. It's a simple formula. We're all born into it and we all believe it. Uh, The only problem is it is doomed to fail, isn't it? The grass is always greener is a formula that is doomed to fail from the start. Because the problem with tying our deep happiness to our external circumstances is that we can never be truly content. I mean, as soon as we manage 
to achieve the pasture we're looking for, the next one comes into view over the next fence. And by definition, that's immediately where our eyes go and where the longing of our heart goes as well. The perfect life will always be in view, but never in reach. It's so human, but it's so dumb. It's such a dumb way to live. You have been given the head of gold. I mean, maybe not actually, but, but the gifts that Jesus has given us are amazing by any measure. I mean, he has poured out the wealth of heaven to his people. And, and to constantly demand more, to constantly be unhappy, because not everything is perfect by our definition, it's not just dumb. It's actually, it's rebellious, okay? I mean, this is, um, this is um, rebellious. It, it's actually evil. This is the definition of sin, to reject God as God and place our comfort and importance at the center of our circumstances. How does this make me feel becomes the central question of our lives. And does this honor God becomes an afterthought, if that. It's a crazy way to live. It's actually insane. But that's what we're going to see next week in Daniel 4. Okay, cliffhanger. Um, If you want to have deep meaning in life and deep happiness, we've got to kill this temptation to tie our joy and rest to our external circumstances. But the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we tie it to something else and actually someone else. Here's strategy two for the quest for deep happiness. Follow the road into the fiery furnace every single time. All right? The alternative approach can be summed up just as easily as the first. It's not your circumstances that make you deeply happy. It's a dynamic, intimate relationship with your creator God that will really make you happy. Enter Daniel's three friends that we met in chapter one, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as my dad used to say, Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. And that was the end of the Bible story for the night and off to bed. When Nebuchadnezzar sets up this statue of rebellion to God because his circumstances weren't quite what he thought he needed them to be, he tells every subject in Babylon to bow down to it. These three men opt out, these three men are found out, and they're brought before the king. As Nebuchadnezzar addresses them, you can see the hubris, the pride, and the rebellion, and the height of sin dripping off of his his tongue when he asks them in verse 15, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, like, who can touch me? Your circumstances, and therefore your happiness, are in my hands I am all sovereign. Who could possibly touch me? But these men totally blow up the assumptions that he has in that statement by taking the road into the fiery furnace instead of running after their joy and rest in their circumstances. They have a different strategy entirely. And their answer is one of my favorite lines in the Bible in verse 16. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, um, your ridiculous opinions and your emotionally unstable narcissism doesn't even reach the level of computation in our strategy for looking for happiness. We just don't care what you think about this at all. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O king, 
that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. God will deliver us, but if not, we're still going the other direction, right? In other words, we don't defy you, king, because we think our God will keep us alive, although we do happen to think he will keep us alive. We defy you because our God is God and you're not. Notice the personal pronoun. They say our God. That points directly to a personal, dynamic, trusting relationship with God himself. See, this is a different strategy for joy and hope and meaning than the kings entirely. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not use God to get the circumstances that they wanted. They remained committed to their relationship with God through obedience and faith, regardless of where that took them in life. See, their confidence was in God himself, the person, the relationship, not in some agenda they thought God could help them get. So one pastor put it this way, the real miracle then didn't actually happen in the furnace, but before they ever walked into it, God got them ready to face the fire. True faith makes human hearts fearless, yet humble. They had been spiritually fireproofed long before they were ever physically fireproofed. See, the true miracle happened when these men had committed themselves to a relationship with God as the basis of their joy and hope and not committed themselves to a certain set of circumstances as the basis of their joy and hope. That's the miracle that transforms us. That's the miracle that God does in our heart to change our lives. It's faith with a spine. That's what this whole new approach to life that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what to do with, right? And, and it blows his mind so much that he just flips the lid, goes, he's irate, he goes crazy, he heats the fire up seven times what it's supposed to be, he kills his own guys trying to send Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, and yet they survive, okay? Yet they walk out the other side. Two things I want to point out here before we wrap up about this time that they spent in the fire. The first is this. God didn't save these men. Um, sorry, God did save these men. But God saved these men through the flames and not from the flames. Okay? You see the difference there? He still sent them into this burning furnace. Isaiah 43 says that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And, and when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that God will save us from the rivers and from the fires of life and the difficulties and the trials. But it means when we are there, because we will all be there, he will always be with us. And he will always be at work in our lives through these difficulties. Now, see... If we're living by the first strategy, option one, where happiness is good circumstances, then any difficult circumstances must be avoided at all costs, right? I mean, if our happiness is bad circumstances, is good circumstances, then run from bad circumstances at all costs. But if nearness to God and a vibrant living relationship with him, if that's deep happiness, then it's a little more nuanced, isn't it? So on the one hand... It's not wrong to wish for different circumstances, to pray for different circumstances, and to work towards them as well. There are many things about this world 
that should receive attention and action from God's people to change. I mean, if there's one story of the Bible, it's that we live in a broken world and Jesus has come to save it and redeem it and heal it. And he has sent his people to be his ambassadors towards that end. So should we try to change circumstances? Of course we should, right? Of course we should. We should be the extension of his redemption and peace in this world. But on the other hand, it's very often in our hardest moments in life, in life's toughest spots, that we experience our own limits and we experience our own sinfulness and, and we feel the need for God the most. And we cry out for him, to him for help and salvation, for his presence, for his endurance. It's often in life's darkest points when the brightness and the light of Jesus' promises shine the brightest. And, and that's a good thing for Jesus's promises to shine large in our lives, not something to run from at all costs. Or as Paul writes in Romans 5, he says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know what that is? That is the gift of a relationship with God being given to us for free. And you know what he says in the very next line? More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. What in the world does that have to do with this gift that we've been given, Paul? I mean, why would you put those two things back to back? Because he says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, suffering can and will help us know and experience God's love in deeper ways than we could ever have known. But only, only on strategy number two, right? On strategy number one, if we're looking for deep happiness, uh, the fires and the trials of life, they're always bad. Right? Avoid suffering at all costs. Certainly never take it on willingly. Certainly never for another person. Right? Don't get involved in other people's ickiness and weirdness and difficulty because why take it on? That's going to make my life worse on strategy number one. If it's uncomfortable or tough, don't do it. Um, that's a good enough reason. The grass is greener somewhere else. Run for the hills. But that cannot be true with the gospel. Okay? Um, the gospel says the most important thing about you is not your circumstances, not even how you feel about your circumstances. The most important thing about you is the gift of an intimate, dynamic relationship with God himself that you've been given. And actually the trials and the furnaces of life are where God promises to meet his people in profound ways, where a relationship with Jesus can often come alive. They can be hard and good at the same time, hard and good at the same time. And that's the last thing I want us to see this morning is that when those three men walked into that fire, they weren't alone, were they? They were not alone. Verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, right? The yes man, that's true, king. Good job, you can count. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound 
walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. In the most dangerous and fearful moment of these young men's lives, the presence of God literally walked beside them through the flames and ushered them through and protected them. Interestingly, when Jesus, God's own son, lived on earth, he said a surprisingly similar thing in a prayer that the author of Hebrews recounts. He said, Jesus offers up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, didn't they? They knew that God could save him from death and they offered up their prayers. And in Hebrews, it says Jesus was heard because of his reverence. When the evil men were conspiring to kill Jesus, Jesus knew God was able to save him uh, from death, just as these three knew God was able to save them from death. And Jesus appealed to God in almost the same way. And yet, God saved these three men through the fire, didn't he? But he didn't save Jesus. He sent Jesus directly into the fires of death and sin and judgment. He was consumed by that fire. And um, he had no companion. There was no one with him. He was totally alone. Even the presence of his father, who he'd been with with from eternity, left him. And uh, he was totally alone. Jesus experienced the ultimate trial, the ultimate fire, so that you and I would never have to go into those places and be alone. He took on that road so that we would never have to. When Jesus was raised from death, he gave his followers a word, the final word, actually, in the Gospel of Matthew, a promise. He said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. There is nowhere you can go, no circumstance you can find yourself in, no trial, no difficulty, no fire, where Jesus will not be with you. Are you lonely? Jesus was totally alone. And you never have to be, okay? He will always be with you. Are you depressed? Jesus will meet you in that sadness. He's been there. He's been isolated. He knows the sadness you feel. You don't have to go there alone. Are you experiencing uh, temptations or stuck in habits of sin? Are you ashamed or feel lost, like there's no hope? Jesus will meet you in that circumstance too. He knows temptation unlike any other, and he will walk with you through the trials of life. There's only really two paths to happiness that we can follow in this world. The grass is always greener strategy. Um, We will, will always fail. We will never be truly fulfilled, never deeply happy, never satisfied. It's a formula to be thirsty forever, okay? On the other hand, the second strategy guarantees the opposite. No matter where you find yourself today or tomorrow, you can know deep happiness and true joy. Not because life is peachy or comfy or easy all the time, but because the source of joy and life promised to be with you through everything forever. At work in your heart, at work in your life, at work in your relationships. In verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar asked, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands. And you notice he, he answered his own question at the end of the chapter in verse 29. He says, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way, okay? There's no other God like Jesus able to rescue us 
in this way, only Jesus rescues by becoming like us, by standing with us in all things, and by taking on sin and death for us, winning a battle we can never win alone. Jesus is with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. God, thank you, for, um, thank you for the example this morning of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these, these faithful men who looked to you for their hope and their trust and their meaning and their joy and their happiness, who chose to place all of that, the quest for deep happiness, in a relationship with you. And thank you, God, for establishing that relationship with us through Jesus, who died on our behalf. Um, it is an amazing gift, and I pray that we take great delight in it. I pray that we trust it with all of our hearts, and you turn us into the kind of people um, yeah, that are courageous in faith for you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.